Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. My name is Allie, and I'm one of the ministers here. And I'm so glad to see all of you this morning, um, and we're glad you've joined us today for worship. If you're new to Calvary, we want you to know that you're welcome here, and we'd love to have the chance to get to know you and follow up with you. And the best way for us to do that is if you fill out this visitor card that's in the pews in front of you. If you'll just place that in the offering plate later in the service, we'll contact you and get to know you a little bit more personally. So we have some church business to attend to, so I'm going to ask Josh Caballero and Joel Weaver to come up here. All right, this shouldn't take too long. I'm going to formally call us into business session and then turn the floor over to Josh Caballero as uh, chair of our coordinating council. Thank you, Joel. Due to some unexpected uh, commitments and circumstances, we have a vacancy on the associate search uh, pastor committee. And so we um, are, the coordinating council recommends that John Singletary uh, fill the vacancy left by Josh Borderu on the associate pastor search committee. All right. And because this comes from coordinating council, we do not require a second, so we will simply vote all uh, in affirming John Singletary taking this spot on the search committee. Please indicate by an uplifted right hand. All opposed by same sign. Sorry, John, it passes. <laughs> <laughs> he would like a recount. <laughs> okay, one more time, all in favor of John? All right, thank you. And that concludes our, our business for this morning. So this morning in worship, we're continuing our worship series called Believing in Epiphanies. And we've been talking through this for the past couple of weeks. Um, I was reading a Psychology Today article yesterday about epiphanies, and it was written by this author whose most recent book is actually all about what an epiphany is. And in the article, she kind of talked a little bit about the definitions of epiphanies that we have. And it carries a range of meaning as she kind of shared in the article, but she said that her favorite definition of epiphany comes from Maya Angelou. And Angelou said, it's, it probably has a million definitions. It's the occurrence when the mind, the body, the heart, and the soul focus together and see an old thing in a new way. So today, as we reflect on the story of Abram, and as we sing about God's steadfast love, and as we explore what our epiphanies might be, may our souls focus together and see old things in new ways. Let's worship together this morning. in the heights, sun and moon 
to be in your house today. It is safe, it is warm, and there is great joy with the family around us. We are here to have a fresh encounter with you. We want to know you better, give us eyes to see you more clearly and in new ways. Give us faith to follow you more fully Give us hearts to love as you love. Quiet us now in this place. Open our hearts and let us hear from you. May we leave this place with a renewed faith and a commitment to glorify you in all we do and all we say. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Just who I am because I need to 
from the book of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house 
to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife, Sarai, and his brother's son, Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward Negev. A reading from the book of Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him for the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that, was, that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
I'd like to invite our children to come join me up front for the children's message. Good morning, how are y'all doing today? Okay, I've got a question for us. What are some things that you believe in without seeing them? What's something you believe in, even though you can't see it, can't know that it's there? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Gosh, that's a great one. What else? Jesus. Jesus. Y'all are so smart. I mean, you just name the Trinity. Y'all are awesome. (laughs) We're done. (laughs) What about... I was thinking about like the wind. Can you see the wind? No. You can feel it. Sometimes you can see the evidence of the, there was really bad wind here um, Friday night and actually broke a window outside of the church because it was so strong. So sometimes we can see evidence of the wind, but we can't necessarily see it. What else? Air, exactly. Like right now, we are, everyone in this room is breathing in and breathing out. What, what are we breathing in specifically? Anybody oxygen. know that? We are breathing in oxygen. So everybody take a d- big deep breath in. And then what are we breathing out? Carbon dioxide. What does carbon dioxide look like? Can you see it? Yes, it's kind of, all the photosynthesis stuff that I'm forgetting. Y'all could teach me about that too. But all, I mean, all that's in here right now, right? We just, we can't see it. What about, okay, what if I were up here and I were like, <coughs> Germs. Germs. (laughs) Can we see germs? No, but if somebody's all coughy and sneezy, we're like, I'm probably going to wash my hands. It's a good idea to wash our hands in this season because there are lots of germs out there. Okay, yeah. I love that. Can you see love? Like, look at this room. Can you see love out there? But is it there? It's absolutely there in the the family of God in this place. Well, y'all named it from the very beginning. We can't see God. And there are some times in our life when it's especially hard to trust in God because we can't see that God is there. And that's one of the things I'm going to be talking about in my sermon today. Abraham had received this incredible promise from God, but years go by and nothing happens. And you just can't see that God is there. But in one of our Bible verses for today, I think Josh Caballero read these words from Hebrews 11, that faith is being confident of what we hope for and sure of what we do not see. Even though we can't see God, faith is trusting that God is there anyway. You know, in the 1930s, there was a group of people in Germany that... They were really horrible to another group of people just because they were different. And they put these people on trains and they made them their prisoners. And it was a really sad and a really hard time in our world. And when it was all over, it was discovered that one of these prisoners had actually written a poem on the wall of his room. And even though he had been through this difficult, lonely, really painful time, he wrote these words. He said, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. 
I believe in love, even when there is no one there. I believe in God, even when God is silent. And I think those words are so strong, and they're so important for all of us to remember, because faith is being sure of what we do not see. And so my hope for each of us is that God can give us faith to trust that God is with us at all times, even when we can't see that God is there. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these children, for their wonder and curiosity um, and the ways that they experience you and remind us what your kingdom is all about. Um, Help us to be people who trust, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, and even when we can't see. Help us to be people who walk by faith and follow you in that. We love you, God, and we ask all this in your name. Amen.
Good morning. Mary Alice asked Brad and I to share a little bit about our calling to come back to Baylor and Waco and if there were any epiphanies that we experienced along the way. So the story begins with Brad. We have a little bit of an epiphany. And uh, I want to be clear, um, what I'm reading from is a journal, not a diary. I don't do diaries, okay? This is a journal. All right, and this is, uh, but I do need my old person glasses. Um, this is June 2nd, Thursday, 2016. And this is right after the things were happening at Baylor, and it broke our hearts, and we were praying for Baylor. And it was about a 20-minute drive from our house to my school, I was a principal in Fairfax, Virginia, at a school there, and Linda was at George Washington University as the dean of the business school. And as I'm driving, I'm having a little quiet time and prayer time, and I'm praying for Baylor, and this is what happened. And I wrote it down later on that night when I got home. Thursday in 2016, June 2nd, I got a quickening of my spirit on the way to work today about Baylor University and the presidency and Linda. And my quickening was, I believe from God, and it was, be prepared, Linda will be the next president of Baylor University. Then, months later, and this was on June the 2nd, 2016, months and months later, on March 14th, again, in my journal I wrote this, <laughs> it says, Tuesday, 2017, March 14th, the search committee called Linda, and it looks like Baylor is a bust. It looks like Baylor University and the search committee is going a different direction. And then I wrote down, but yet we will praise his name. And so about two weeks after that, we got another call back from the search committee that said, well, wait a minute, we don't think that they really are going a different direction. They want to talk to you again. And so ultimately, about the middle of March 2017, or middle of April 2017, I interviewed with the regents, and ultimately they named me president. But I have to say that I never felt the confidence that Brad did for those, I don't know, oh, 10 months leading faith, up to right? that. Uh, and it probably wasn't until I was actually in the interview with the regents that I actually began to go, you know, I think this might really happen. Uh, and Brad, really, the gracious husband that he is, he's only said, I told you so, a couple of times since then. <laughs> and I would have to say my epiphanies actually occurred more after I was named president than they did leading up to that. And the first one really had to do with the fact that I was named the first woman president of Baylor. And I have always throughout my career tried to sort of play down the fact that I was a woman leader or that I was the first woman that did whatever it might be and really wanted to stand on my own work and accomplishments as opposed to my gender. But as we came back to Baylor, it became very, very clear that it really mattered a lot to the Baylor family that I was a woman president. And in fact, when we came back, even before we officially started, you know, students would line up to take pictures with us, particularly a woman students, and they would tell me how much it meant to them that I was a woman president. We had alumni as we went out to events. I had women alums, particularly some of our more senior alums, who were in tears when they would meet me because it meant so much to them that I was a woman. And they would even say, I thought I would die before Baylor had a woman president. Uh, and we had little children whose parents, little girls whose parents would bring them up to me and say, 
I want my daughter to meet you so that she meets a woman president. And I've even had some of them come back to me and say, my daughter now wants to grow up to be a president. Now, I think they might need counseling, but that's okay. <laughs> so I really had to embrace, and so it was really a multiple series of events that helped me to see how important that really was in ways that I frankly have had to sort of embrace in ways I wouldn't have been as comfortable doing previously. The second epiphany really happened as we were out meeting people in our early months here. And as we met people, they expressed such uh, excitement that we had come, such joy over us being here, tremendous support, people saying that they were praying for us every single day. I had somebody this morning tell me that they pray for me every single morning. And how much uh, us coming here meant for the future of Baylor. And so my second epiphany was really around this sense that one of the most important things we had to do, me as president, our family as first family, was to provide a sense of hope and optimism to the Baylor community for what was ahead given the really dark period of time that the university had gone through the last couple of years as well as really for a number of years before that. And there's a scripture in Jeremiah 29 that says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans... Um, uh, that plans for a hope and for the future. And I've really had to rely on that and accept that, that we really do represent hope and the future in many ways that I'm not sure we really anticipated when we came. But I have to say, when we look back over the last two and a half years since Brad's epiphany, uh, we have seen God's hand in all that we've done. We felt his guidance along the way and I feel truly blessed to be here and are unbelievably optimistic and hopeful about the future. And lastly, I, I've got to add too on that March 14th when I wrote that, I was actually administering the SAT exam at my high school when Linda texted me and told me that. It looks like it's a bus, they're going a different way. About a week and a half later, I called Linda, the head of the search, and said, you know, we don't know what happened, but all of a sudden you're back on their radar again. And I just turned to Linda and I said, I know exactly what happened on that one. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was the epiphany. But the last thing we want to say is that when we came back, we visited a, a lot of different Baptist churches. Um, and everywhere we went, and it, rightfully so, and we were, we were proud to be that, we were the first family. Everywhere that Shelby, Lynn, and I went. When we came to Calvary, we were Brad, Linda, and Shelby. This is family here. And we are so appreciative of Calvary Baptist Church and our church family. Thank you.
I'd like to add one more scripture reading for us today, and this is in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, gracious God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this room be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, last week I ended my sermon sharing about Martin Luther King Jr.'s epiphany moment at his kitchen table in Montgomery, Alabama. It was 1956, and King had become involved in leading the Montgomery bus boycott, a movement he actually said he thought could be resolved fairly quickly. But two years later, tensions continued to escalate, and it felt like they were getting nowhere. He came home late one night only to answer a phone call with yet another death threat towards his family. He walks into the kitchen with trembling hands, makes a cup of coffee, and sinks down at his kitchen table. And he writes, I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing to be a coward. But at that moment, he says, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear this quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, he says, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared and I was ready to face anything. And so last week, we talked about this extraordinary moment that, that strengthened King on his journey. But the reality is that life only got harder for him from that moment on. A few years later, King led a campaign to desegregate what he called the most segregated city in the country, Birmingham. It was an incredibly difficult time landing King in jail yet again, but no one was expecting what would happen next. One Sunday morning, an explosion was heard across downtown Birmingham when four Ku Klux Klan terrorists bombed 16th Street Baptist Church, which had been the headquarters of King's crusade that spring. And four young girls, all ready for their youth day service, were killed. 
King's oldest child, Yolanda, said, I had never seen my father as depressed as I did that day. For hours, he seemed almost catatonic, sitting in his office, his head in his hands, just brooding in silence. Until that day, no one had died because of any of his campaigns. And close friends and family said King was emotionally devastated unlike they had ever seen before. He told reporters that day, we feel that Birmingham is now in a state of civil disorder, an emergency situation. He warned President Kennedy that without drastic action, we shall see the worst racial holocaust this nation has ever seen. And yet the White House did nothing. And then in July of 1967, many of the nation's major cities began to explode with rioting. In Detroit, a thousand buildings were gutted by fire. From the sky, looking down, it appeared like half the city had been destroyed by several square miles of flames. A hundred people were killed. And with each riot that broke out, King fell into an even greater depression, greater than I had ever seen, his wife Coretta said. King knew he needed to talk to a counselor. He also knew that the FBI was tracking his every word, and there were so few safe places for him to turn in these moments. So he held it all in, all that trauma, all the pain. He told a Los Angeles congregation around this time, it is midnight in our world today. We are experiencing a darkness so deep that we can hardly see which way to turn. Everywhere, paralyzing fear has harrowed people by day and haunted them by night. Our world is sick with fear. I fear our nation's soul has been poisoned. One of King's biographers, Stuart Burns, says, In his soul's relentless tug of war between hope and despair, King usually managed to give hope the edge at least in his public words. But now the dark chambers of pessimism are closing in on him like claustrophobic jail cells. And so yes, King had this epiphany at his kitchen table on that night in 1956, and it sustained him through many dark times. But as far as we know, he never had an encounter quite like that ever again. And he was deeply troubled, isolated, and depressed in the final months of his life. I think it begs of us to ask the question, what do we do when our epiphany moment is over? What do we do when that moment is so long gone? Perhaps we had an epiphany experience when God felt so real and so present with us. Perhaps we were so sure of our way forward with God at our side forever as King first felt in Montgomery. But what does it look like to live as people of faith when that moment has faded into the night? When our past epiphany doesn't at all match our present reality? 
I think this is the question Abram must have asked himself in the years after God's call as we read about in today's scripture reading. I'd actually like for us to start in Genesis 11 with Abram's family tree. In chapter 11, we find a genealogy listing the names of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who became the father of so-and-so. But then the pattern changes in chapter 11, verse 30, which says, Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. I love how scholar Walter Brueggemann writes about what's going on here. He says, barrenness is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. There is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future. But barrenness is not only the condition of a hopeless humanity. He says the marvel of biblical faith is that barrenness is the arena of God's life-giving action. And so it is in this space of barrenness and hopelessness that God's life-giving action takes the scene as we begin Genesis 12 today. God tells Abram to leave his home and the rest of his family behind and to go to the land that God will show him. And God promises to extend Abram's family, to bless them, to make their name great so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through them. It's a pretty gigantic promise that God makes here in Genesis 12, especially considering that Abram and his wife Sarah are quite old in age and throughout all their years have never been able to have any children. But notice that Abraham doesn't hesitate in response to God's call. And the next three words are some of what I believe are the most powerful words in all of Scripture. So Abram went. You see, I think you could argue that here in Genesis 12, Abram has an epiphany. He has this encounter with God that impacts him so significantly that it only takes three words to describe how quickly and faithfully he follows God's call. He packs up everything and everyone he can and sets out to follow God to this mysterious place, to the land that God will show him. Like the Magi that we read about a few weeks ago in Matthew 2, Abram has been changed by this epiphany moment. And he and his family are going home by another road, even though they have no idea where that road is leading or where their new home will be. And so first they arrive in Canaan. The Lord tells them that he will give this land to their offspring. But the Canaanites are in the land now, so they have to keep going. They move from place to place as the Lord instructs them. And by the time we get to chapter 15, it appears that almost 10 years have passed. And it feels like Abram and his family have been wandering aimlessly from place to place. And not even one sliver of that gigantic promise that the Lord made to them has even come close to coming true. The epiphany is over and reality has set in. 
And so Abram says to God, what use is your promise when here I am still childless? You've still given me no children, and one of my house servants is going to inherit everything. But God says to him, don't worry. Your very own child will become your heir. And he takes him outside and says, look toward the heavens and just count the stars if you are able. So shall your descendants be. It's almost this Lion King kind of moment of look at all that is there. But the reality is that God doesn't give Abraham any sort of timeline here. God reiterates the promise, pointing to the stars in the sky, but he doesn't give Abram any more information than he did the first time around. In fact, it's not until chapter 17 that God tells Abram and Sarah that they will have a son in a year. And while that's only two chapters later, scholars believe it's actually 13 years after God first tells Abram that he will have a child, making it 14 years at least before God delivers on God's promise. And yet, Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us that in this moment, even in the midst of his questions, even without having any concrete evidence to suggest otherwise, even in his increasing age and state of barrenness, even in the midst of his utter hopelessness, Abram believes. Brueggemann points out here in chapter 15 that barrenness persists. It is part of the destiny of our common faith that those who believe the promise and hope against barrenness nevertheless must live with the barrenness. Why and how does one continue to trust solely in the promise even when the evidence against the promise is all around? That is the scandal that is faced here, he says. It is Abram's embrace of this scandal that makes him the father of our faith. So what do you and I do when we, like Abram, are in this long stretch of barrenness, waiting and hoping and praying for God's promise to be fulfilled? Maybe we're waiting for a dream God has planted within us to come to life that we're starting to wonder if it ever will. Maybe we feel like God has given us a calling, and yet we have experienced one closed door after another, or we've heard the words no, and not yet, and wait one too many times. Maybe the diagnosis is not good and there are simply no quick fixes. Maybe there are no fixes at all. Maybe we're in a long stretch of grief or loneliness or discouragement and we're wondering if this journey is ever going to take a turn toward the promised land. And so what do we do in that long stretch of wilderness when we begin to doubt the calling or the dream or the promise or the epiphany of, what, of which we were once so very sure? 
Author Stephanie, Stephanie Reich writes that this is precisely when we ought to keep believing in epiphanies. Keep looking for them. She says they will come, but don't depend on them. Because faith means holding on to the fact that heaven broke through earth even after the star has dimmed and you have to go back to ordinary life. Faith means remembering that miracles are true even when it's been a long time since you witnessed one firsthand. You see, it was by faith that Abram kept going too. By faith, the author of Hebrews tells us, Abram said yes to God's call to travel to an unknown place that would become his home. And even when he couldn't see where the road led, he took that next step forward by faith. Of course, this is the kind of faith that Jesus was talking about when he told Thomas and the disciples, because you have seen me, you believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Jesus calls us to live by faith, to trust, to believe, even when we can't see the way forward. And so how is God inviting you and me and Calvary to be people who live by faith? even when our epiphany is long gone and we cannot begin to see what's next. I firmly believe that's exactly how Martin Luther King Jr. kept putting one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, in those final months of his life, by faith. In the midst of the riots of 1967, he preached a sermon at Mount Pisgah Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago where he shared the following words. He said, I get weary every now and then. The future looks difficult and dim, but I'm not worried about it ultimately because I have faith in God. Centuries ago, Jeremiah raised a question, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? He raised it because he saw the good people suffering so often and the evil people prospering. Centuries later, our slave foreparents came along and they too saw the injustices of life and had nothing to look forward to morning after morning but the rawhide whip of the overseer, long rows of cotton in the sizzling heat. But they did an amazing thing. They looked back across the centuries and they took Jeremiah's question mark and straightened it into an exclamation point. And they could sing, there is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. And there's another stanza that I like so well. He says, sometimes I feel discouraged. I don't mind telling you this morning that sometimes I feel discouraged. I felt discouraged in Chicago. As I move through Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama, I feel discouraged. Living each day under the threat of death, I feel discouraged. Living every day under extensive criticism, I feel discouraged sometimes. 
Yes, sometimes I feel discouraged and feel my work is in vain. But then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. And so friends, if you find yourselves discouraged this morning, know that you are in good company with the people of God, with Abraham and with Martin and with a whole host of others who try their best to trust in God even in the darkness and difficulties of this world. And so even in the midst of our discouragement, may we join with that great cloud of witnesses who walked by faith, who marched by faith, who serve by faith, who give by faith, who lead by faith, who follow by faith, who love by faith. May we be people who live each day by faith. And so, God, I ask that in those times when we feel discouraged, when we feel like that epiphany moment is so long gone and we don't know where God is in the midst of this, God, give us faith to take that next step forward. Give us faith to trust you more. Give us faith to believe even when we cannot see. Help us to be known by faith. And help us to be known for the courageous ways in which we seek to follow you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. We have been in a season of epiphany here at Calvary. And the most important epiphany that you and I can ever have is that moment when we sense a call to follow God and to walk in the way of Jesus. And so if you feel like today is the day for you to respond to that call, we would love to to share in that decision and to celebrate that with you today. Or maybe you feel like God is calling you to join this community of faith at Calvary, where we seek to walk by faith together in the best ways we know how. We would love to welcome you into our church family. And so however God leads you to respond, our ministers will be in the back ready to receive you and to pray with you as we continue in worship.
for guiding us on the way when we are unsure of the path. May we be blessed with the humility to recognize when this is the case. Your word tells us that through you our world was formed, and in the midst of uncertainty, we pray to trust you in faith, a faith that trusts in things not seen and takes the first step even when we do not see the whole staircase. May our faith model that of Abram and Sarai, our father and mother, who followed you without knowing what the future held. It is only in this step of faith that we will see the fruit of our conviction. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. Amen. some friends I would love for you to meet if you haven't had a chance to meet them yet. This is Missy, Hannah, and Megan Kittner, and John Wood, and they are all coming uh, to join the Calvary family today. Um, just to share a bit about them, Missy works at MCC um, in HR, and when I asked, I actually got to ask Megan what you're passionate about, because she was singing in the choir, so she is passionate about music. Um, but Megan shared with me that you're passionate about people, and joining people in their journeys, really investing and in, in knowing the people that you do life with, and so I think that's something we absolutely value here at the Calvary family as well. And I learned that Hannah is a gamer and also loves music, and we're so excited that you've been part of the choir as well. Megan loves children, and she's taught all different grades, and currently she's teaching developmental English at MCC. Um, and John also teaches. He teaches high school Spanish in Robinson. Um, and then on the side, he likes to DJ weddings, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so it's a family who's passionate about lots of things, and we are excited about um, all that you will bring to the Calvary family. Um, and the Calvary family has some words that we would like to share in response to your decision today. In response to your decision... We pledge ourselves to the family of God and to the We offer you our 
Well, I'm going to invite you all to have a seat for just a moment, and then if you would follow me out during the benediction. Chad, I'm actually going to ask you if you would follow us out as well, because I would love for you to help introduce people to the, the Kittners and to John as well. Um, well, if you're new to Calvary, we're especially glad you're here today. We hope you'll stick around for a few moments after worship and let us get to know you better. Um, know that our office will be closed tomorrow in observance of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We encourage everyone uh, to celebrate and to observe this day in some special way. Um, our office hours moving forward will be condensed during this interim time, and so the office will be open from 10 to 12 and 1 to 3. And we are especially grateful to Jeanette Rudd and Dave McCann who are taking on leadership to help us during this time. Next Sunday, I'm so excited to share that our friend and neighbor, Sam Doyle, pastor of Greater New Light Missionary Baptist Church across the street, will be preaching with us in worship at Calvary. So I hope you'll be here next week and really look forward to that time with Sam. And now I'd like to ask Chad Eggleston um, to share with us about our candidate to be children's minister here at Calvary. Well, as they say at Chick-fil-A, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Miss Jenny Chilton. The Children's Ministry Search Committee, uh, Children's Minister Search Committee, rather, has completed its work, Lord willing, in the creek don't rise, in anticipation of a vote next week, and we have found Jenny. We believe that Jenny is a tremendously gifted individual. She is currently a student in the joint degree program at Truett Theological Seminary. She's completing an MDiv and her Master in Education. So she brings both sides of that world to our church. We are so excited about Jenny's presence among us. She is a winsome individual and charismatic. Many of you all had a chance this morning to meet her and get to know her a little bit better. She is experienced. She is gifted. And most importantly, she told us this morning, she said, you know, this is not true about everybody, but it is true about me that I love kids. And we have noticed that you love kids, Jenny, and we are very excited about the potential of your ministry together with us. I believe next week you're going to go out and uh, uh, meet everyone and shake hands and kiss babies with our dear pastor. But this morning, we just want you all to know Jenny's face. And as you have time, if you would shake her hand and make her feel welcome among us. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. Well, thank you all. Well, please stand and join me for this benediction. And our new friends, I'd love for you all to come out with me. So, Friends, may the God who calls you from this place journey with you as you go. May God delight in you with joy, bringing unimagined graces. Walk with you in darkness, shining light along your way. May God be close to you in pain, giving strength for every moment. And comfort you in fear, granting courage to be brave. May God's love surround you. May Christ's mercy astound you. And may the Spirit abound in you, so that you live in the fullness of the God who is with us always. Amen.
peace. Amen.